Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey, everybody. I've had some more reviews coming in lately. I very much appreciate that. All five-star reviews on iTunes. All wonderful things to say. I appreciate it. Keep those coming in. Uh, I I bring it up because I had, well, today we're going to be talking about our interpretation of sound and music and how we perceive it. And speaking of which, uh, a couple of reviews lately on iTunes, although they're wonderful glowing reviews, also mentioned that, uh, that there's been some audio imbalances in some of the podcasts like uh, one person said that my voice is often um, much louder than than the guest and these are things that should be pretty easy to quick uh, to fix if we if we know what we're looking for the thing is is with the review I can't respond to it so I couldn't get any specifics so I don't know if this has happened recently or in the past because we made a big change because there was a lot of audio problems. Uh, episode 1 through 22, and then we made a big change, and uh, hopefully that that took care of it, and maybe not every episode is perfect, but if you do notice anything like that, that this is the kind of advice that we very, very, very much appreciate. Um, I, I really need to hear from you guys because I can easily have a lot of that stuff corrected. Um, sometimes people are listening on other devices, than than um, what Ramin Nazer, my producer, is listening to it on headphones. It might sound different in the car. Um, my guess is that's not the case. It's, it hasn't been any of the recent episodes, but I'd like to know if it is. So please write me at here we are. Go to the here we are podcast.com website. Click on Ask a Scientist, and you can give me that feedback, which will be oh so valuable. And we will make improvements to make everything more enjoyable for you in the future. So always appreciate all kinds of feedback like that. Please don't it's if if 
you know, don't don't feel like you're insulting the podcast or anything like that. If you happen to notice something that we're missing, that is incredibly helpful. So please keep stuff like that coming. And thank you again for all the support. Enjoy today's episode. It's a real good one. And I'll talk to you on the other side. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with award-winning scientist, musician, author, and recording producer, Daniel Leventon. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me today. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for coming to my house. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful home with a, a cool piano in the corner here and and records everywhere. And wait, why aren't the records on on the uh, on the wall yet? I haven't. Oh, I haven't figured out where to put it yet. <laughs> um, so uh, you've done some record producing. Well, let's let's go back a little bit because you were originally a musician, correct? Yeah. And so, how did you go from musician to record producer to scientist? Well, I just kept seeking new levels of incompetence. <laughs> so, I um, I played in a number of bands, and um, each one, you know, we'd be together for a year or two, and then we'd break up, and then I'd join another band, and. Um, after spending years clawing my way up to the bottom of the California music scene, uh, I made the switch into production and engineering. I figured um, rather than hitching my fortune to a single band, if I produced and engineered, I could spread the bets. <laughs> yeah. So like going to Vegas and playing a bunch of numbers at once. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, uh, the there's several of uh, there's several not very successful comedians that end up becoming agents and, Is that, right? <laughs> and that sort of thing. I'm sure that's true. It, it's not a ton, but, but I've, I've known yeah. a, a few. Yeah, uh, it happens. But every but, once in a while, you get the opposite, right? You have somebody like Louis C.K., who was a behind-the-scene writer. Yeah. And then 20 years go by of, of him writing for Letterman and others, and then suddenly he's out front. Yeah, well, I mean, he always was a stand-up. He just wasn't very well known for it. So I think yeah. he just got more power, more opportunity. But he's always been uh, hilarious. Yeah, was, actually, his first album years and years ago was one of my favorites. Um, so how did you then become a, a scientist? How did that happen? So in the, um, in the 90s, when the record industry started to implode, some friends of mine and I, musicians and producers and engineers who were in the business, started to look for fallbacks, you know, other things to do in case <laughs> the industry really went south, which it did. And so one friend of mine went back to law school, went back to school and got a law degree and then started working for the Clinton administration in the EPA, <laughs> and then another buddy of mine um, left music and went into video production here in L.A., in the San Fernando Valley, and I went back to school. I didn't give up production, but I went back to school half-time uh, just to see. I, f I never had gotten my bachelor's degree. I figured I'd see you know, what it was like, and I was also curious because from the times that I was in the studio and in bands, I was fascinated by why some people are more successful than others, mm. even though by some objective measures it seemed that they were equally skillful, right? 
And what was that hidden factor, that X factor? And, and what do we know from genetics and brain science that could inform questions about that? And I, I went back to school seeking some answers. Hmm. Um, so I just went last Sunday, I went to see um, David Gilmore. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, which I, I was like, I, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I think I might have time for that or whatever when my roommate suggested it. And then when I was there, I was like, oh, my God, I almost went my whole life without ever seeing anyone from Pink Floyd, which uh, was always one of my favorites, probably my favorite band of all time. Um, when, when I was a teenager, first it was Nirvana and then it was uh, Pink Floyd. And um, and it, it's interesting. Why, why is it that those those bands that you uh, that that everyone listens to during those formative years, um, maybe I guess that kind of answers itself a little bit. But but why why is it that those are those are the groups that people end up liking for the rest of their life, and and uh, they they don't understand the new stuff that the kids today are listening to and that sort it's of thing. It's just noise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's, as you say, it, they're formative years, and we now know something about the science behind it. So. Um, between the age of birth, well, minus six months in the womb, you know, three months old, so minus six months, mm-hmm. and um, and about ten years old, the primary mission of the brain is to make as many new connections as possible. So you're hungrily soaking up stuff like a sponge before the age of ten, and then around eleven, the pubertal growth hormones start to kick in. And one of the things they do is they make everything that's happening around you seem very important. Oh, it is. It is very, <laughs> very important. And so that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, and, you, you, I mean, it's not just music. You probably remember movies you saw then and books you read and the friends you had and, the, you know, the things you did. Uh, and then the other thing is the brain's now shifting its mission in the second decade of life to start pruning away unnecessary or unused connections mm-hmm. And so it instantiates very strongly the stuff that's coming in. You're literally wiring your brain up to the experiences of those years. And so not everybody, but most people report that the music between the ages of, say, 12 and 16, maybe 12 and 20, that's really the shit. Yeah. (laughs) And they spend the rest of their lives trying to find either more of that or new music that sounds like that, because maybe their heroes uh, are being copied by some of the young artists. Today. Right. Um, yeah. That, that's well. It's interesting. I read. I read that there's um, some sort of time frame. I think it's around like three years old or four years old or something like that. Where, where whatever foods you haven't been exposed to by the age of four. It's later on in life. It's going to take you a lot longer to kind of acquire the taste for those foods. That's why it took us so long to come around to coffee. When <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took me a long time to come around to coffee, and now I can't get enough of it. Um, so, so it's interesting that there does seem to be these mechanisms that uh, that that are like, okay, we we know what we need to know about that. That's yeah. we're we're good. We got music figured out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything else is going to take. Some time. Well, there are some people who have very open tastes, and they're constantly expanding. Uh, people like David Byrne, mm. uh, hopefully record company executives, you know, who are a bunch of people my age making decisions for a bunch of people less than half my age, a third of my age even, and um, hopefully they keep open minds. There's some legendary record company people 
who were able to spot talent years before anybody else was. Seymour Stein is one of my favorite examples. So he started Sire Records. Mm-hmm. And he's responsible for us knowing about a whole range of groups like the Ramones, Depeche Mode, uh, the Pretenders, the Talking Heads, Madonna. He signed all those bands when nobody else knew who they were. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was. It kind of reminds me of. I think it was my second episode, so this would have been about eighty weeks ago. So we'll see how my memory does. But I had this uh, woman, um, Morgan Ward, on, and she was talking about how. Um, people seem to, if people don't listen to very much music at all, they seem to just want to hear kind of like the poppier, the kind of easier stuff, the stuff they already know. And people that listen to music just like every day, all the time, tend to constantly be seeking out new and uh, a bit more variety in, in what they're uh, looking for. Have you found that to be the case at all or have you seen anything about that i am sure i haven't seen anything about that i'm sure there are people like that but i also know people who don't listen to music all that much but when they do they want something new hmm. and and they want to be but i mean it, it's not surprising because of the thousands of ways that we humans differ from one another um, one of the dimensions is open that you know of difference is how open yeah, you are yeah. to new experiences so and it shows up in a bunch of different ways in your life. So do you want to go see a new comedy act? Or do you want to see the same person that you've seen before? Doing the same routine you've seen him or her do before. And, and oh yeah, we're going to go out to dinner beforehand. Do you want to go to the same restaurant you always go to and order right. the same thing? Or do you want to try this new Myanmarian restaurant? Yeah, well I want to talk to you, I want to, talk to you about uh, expectations and how they figure into our interpretation and appreciation of music. Can you talk a little bit about that because that's kind of that's kind of the the base of our um of music's appeal a little bit, right? And I think that's what it has in common with comedy. Yeah. That um in both cases the skillful uh composer or writer is supposed to lead you down this path that you're comfortable going down. But somewhere along the line, they have to surprise you and show you that you're not where you thought you were. Because if you are exactly where you thought you were, it's not fun anymore. Mm. So in other words, in music, if, um, if the song is utterly predictable and you see exactly where it's going and there's no surprise, you get bored or if you paid money for it, mad. Right. And same thing with a joke or a comedy routine. If you end up exactly where you saw it was going, that you're, you're furious. But the surprise, uh, the laughter that comes is this response to being surprised, but not any old surprise, because I could surprise you by sneaking up behind you. It's a surprise where you realize I'm not only where I didn't think I was, but where I am is is really interesting. Yeah, it's this is this is better than where I thought I was going to end up. <laughs> yeah. This is a better resolution, either musically or comedically. And still, it's somehow some like an appropriate place to be. It still yeah. kind of makes sense on some sort of logic. And musicians play around with this all the time. Uh, I can give you a little example on the piano. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to take my little microphone over here. Sure. So if I were to play, say I wanted to write a little melody. You want me to hold the mic for you? Um, or you can probably no, just... Can... All right. Maybe I want to write a little melody, and it, it would go like this. That's the beginning. Not a great melody, but it's a start. 
Uh, and then maybe the next thing I would do is... So I've got your attention now because I did something that was familiar, the same kind of contour, the up and downs are the same, but with new notes, right? Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting. I, I, I kind of made silk out of a sow's ear there. Uh, <laughs> right. So I want to continue the melody now. I could go... Now, now you're getting you're probably ready to punch me. I mean, this is beginning to sound like an exercise, not a real <laughs> piece of music. But I can change one note and get it back again. Hmm. <laughs> I've redirected your attention now, and what you want to hear now is some kind of resolution. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is what comics are doing all the time as well. Um, you, when you and I first started communicating, it was, it was trying to find links between comedy and, um, yeah, uh, and I, music. Can you hold on a second? I'm going to wipe that up. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Do you want a three code? I will. And we're back. Having uh, after moving the equipment to play the piano, I spilt a cup of tea. Um, no one will be there wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, pe- people that uh, uh, I think that kind of proves the point that um, breaking expectations isn't always a, <laughs> a positive thing. Um, so, uh, you know, comparing music and comedy, a lot of a lot of times people will point out that. Um, as a comedian or as someone going to see comedy, rather, a lot of times people don't want to hear the same joke over and over again. And I do get after shows, sometimes people are like, oh, I wish you would have told this one. It's one of, it's one of my favorites or whatever. But I think that, um, but I've also heard other people that, that go to see their favorite comic over and over again and, and they haven't changed their act in years and they complain about that. Um, whereas music, yeah, I went to David Gilmore, uh, the other day and, uh, and he played a little, a few of his songs and then mostly Pink Floyd. And I liked some of his songs. I, uh, there was a couple that weren't my cup of tea either, but, uh, but the Pink Floyd songs, the one that I'd heard a thousand times were, were the ones that, uh, that I enjoyed the most. Even. And I could listen to Bill Cosby do Noah over and over and over again. Yeah. Or Alan Sherman do some of his parodies. Or Louis C.K.'s Saturday Night Live monologue from May of 2015 where he does the pedophilia routine. Yeah. And in that case, the first time I watched it, it just made me uncomfortable. Right. But the 10th and 12th and 15th time I watched it, <laughs> I was just marveling at the precision and the structure of it all. And um, I think, you know, I I recently uncovered uh, the old Abbott and Costello who's on first routine. Mm -hmm. And I I found about 30 different versions of it that they did year after year. They were constantly tinkering with it. Hmm. So there's an early, early version of it from, you know, before there was television and, I mean, early days of radio. It must be from an Edison cylinder, a wax cylinder or something. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, you hear it again a few years later and then all the way up until until the time when Costello died, they were doing it on TV and changing it around. So I I admire that about um, a performer 
which is what I'm sure David Gilmore is doing, is he's changing around some of the arrangement or some of the solos. He's not- there was definitely some solo variations and stuff yeah. in some of the bigger songs, where he, and I absolutely loved those. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And it doesn't always work, but it's about taking risks and about keeping the audience wondering. Hmm. Um, so as I was watching, and I, I mean, I do have to admit that I was on mushrooms at the time, but as I was watching, I was getting, um, one, probably a little more emotional than I would have normally, uh, which, which sometimes happens on mushrooms, but, and then mushrooms also sometimes make, make everything seem very connected and, and bring back old memories and whatnot. But I found that, that watching that I was having, these flashes of all of these Pink Floyd memories through my life of, of like uh, X that had uh, Wish You Were Here ring, yeah. ringtone when I called her yeah. or whatever and, and just a whole bunch of memories yeah. like that. I, and then after you broke up, she changed it to Brick in the Wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't think I ever tried calling her after we broke up, but I'm sure that would have been the case. Um, or maybe she changed it to the lunatic is on the grass. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so why do these songs, why does this audio thing with, you know, these series of notes, why does it have this ability to, um, uh, kind of capture all of these, these memories as well? Or, or is it kind of the, is it the other way around that you're, you're at some crazy party when you're a kid and you hear a song, so then later on you hear that song? Or, or is, it, is it that as, as your brain's processing the music, it's taking in other environmental stimulus and that's why it's storing some of the memories? So we're not entirely sure right. about all of this, but what, what I think is going on is that um, there's, there's two kinds of songs that you know and that you hear. There's songs that you hear all the time, mm-hmm. and I mean that's like "Happy Birthday" and the national anthem, and God help us, Hotel California. <laughs> I mean, these are songs you can't escape, right? right? And and then there's songs that are kind of tied to certain eras or periods of your life, um, because of the way radio works, or because of the way your life works, or your iPod works, or whatever. Um, you know, Pink Floyd was there for certain years, and then it wasn't, um, or maybe maybe it's been there all along, mm-hmm. uh, but. Um, if if there are particular pieces of music that are tied to particular stages of your life, they serve as a memory retrieval cue to open up those memories. Um, the The current theory is that most of what you've experienced is stored up in the, in your memory. The hard part isn't storing it; the hard part's pulling it out because there's so much in there. Yeah. It's like opening up a, a junk drawer and looking for the rubber bands. And I mean, there's matchsticks and candles and... Oh, I absolutely think that's the case. I mean, think about when... I, I mean, I had a dream about someone recently that's been dead for years. And yet in this dream, I they were, you know, I saw them perfectly. They were talking perfectly, yeah. just like they would and everything else. So they're, even though I haven't seen them in years... They're somewhere in my brain yeah. re- represented perfectly, those yeah. memories. So I, I do think that has to be the case on some yeah. level. Yeah, so I think, I think you know, being at a, a concert and being under the influence of psilocybin... <laughs> um, I, I mean, that doesn't even need to be the case, you know? It doesn't Music have to can, be the case, no. <laughs> it just helps. But um, I think those songs and the, um, 
the particular sounds, find the last instance that you heard them in memory and then open up some associative things. Mm. Now, getting back to the dream, I don't want to be a spoil sport. Okay. But I do want to add a um, a skeptical or critical Sure. Um, we love that on the show. Good. So all of us have these dreams where um, we see somebody that's no longer in our lives, either they died or they moved away or whatever, and, and it seems as though they look exactly like you remember them. They sound exactly like, as you said, you know, your friend said things that he would actually say, and it was your friend's voice, and you recognized it as such. Um, you didn't say it was your friend, but the person you knew. Uh, and so, but separate from all of that, yeah. there's this um, module or mechanism in the brain that tells you whether stuff is true or not and tells you whether it's, um, well, it, it tells you whether something's new or old and mm. whether it's good or bad. And those detectors aren't always working properly when we're asleep. Right, right. So you might imagine a song in a dream and imagine that it, you're writing it and that it's the most brilliant song you've ever heard and you're writing it and it's new. And maybe you are able to wake yourself up and record it and then go back to sleep and you wake up in the morning and it's possible, this has happened to a lot of people, including mm -hmm. me, you play it back and you go, oh, that, that is a good song, but I didn't write it, Bob Dylan did. This, this is my, my novelty detector, the newness detector was offline. Right. So it was telling me it was new. So your brain could have been telling you, yeah, that's this person's voice and that's what the person looks like. Oh yeah, that's really it. But you don't know. Right. Well, I, I do. I mean, one, to your point, I had a lucid dream recently. Well, I didn't realize it until I was like halfway through. I was like, oh, wait a second, I'm dreaming. And this is yeah. how I could tell was because I was uh, I, I play board games here and there. And I think we had a board game night recently and it was either that night or the night after. I had you a have game. a very active social life. <laughs> you're taking mushrooms. You're going to see David Gilmore. You're playing board games. I'm talking with scientists. <laughs> yeah, I, I, am, I, have a, uh, I have a weird life. I've just been sitting around for a week doing nothing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, this is, this is also why I was sick last week when we were supposed to interview, because of my overactive social life. Um, but, but we were playing this game and I, I rolled, I was explaining the game to people in this dream and I, uh, I looked at the dice and this dice has these six different symbols on it. And then there's one that I didn't recognize on the dice. And then I looked and there's another one. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't the game. And then that's when I realized that I was dreaming. So I can see how you could interpret it that way, that it that was just your brain telling you that yeah. it was just like it was or whatever. But I also had so so that same that same person. I saw him, the the first one was just a dream, so I don't really trust my dream memories anyway. But the second time it was like a lucid dream, okay. and it was like they were older. It was like that the age that they would right. be right. now, and it was it was almost it was interesting that my brain was able to kind of put that together, and it looked very believable, yeah. you know, and everything else. I. I don't know. I, I just I do think that there is something with you talk about prototypes a lot um, with music. Could you explain that a little bit? Like how how, um, how we have kind of these uh, uh, these exemplars uh, sort of in our, our heads of 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 kind of a uh, like a template, a, 
like, like a perfect representation of how something might be. So, so I have like a, the perfect idea of, of what a table looks like, say, in my head. And so then my brain, brain can access this to, uh, and it's this flexible kind of uh, prototype that could be like, oh, that's also a table because right. it has those other elements to it. And, and music, uh, you, you made a case in your book that, that uh, and, oh, and by the way, um, it, you wrote you wrote the books The Organized Mind, The Foundations of Cognitive Psychology, uh, the book The World in Six Songs, and This Is Your Brain on Music, and This Is Your Brain on Music is kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah. I also saw your TED Talk on uh, six songs. Um, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, which, by the way, everyone should go and... Uh, you don't remember the title of it. Uh, I think it's called here. The World in Six Songs. The World in Six Songs. And it was with the L.A. Contemporary Dance Company. Yeah. And with um, a musical group that I love. They're now called um, Aurora. Mm-hmm. They used to be called Sonos. They're an acapella group. And this um, producer I know named Hugo Vericker had read The World in Six Songs and um, loved it and wanted to turn it into a stage production, turn the book into some kind of a stage production. Hmm. And he wasn't sure what. And um, we thought, well, we, you know, we, we had several meetings, and we decided it'd be nice to have uh, mu- music and dance to demonstrate some of the ideas of the book. So we put together this TED Talk as a 15-minute kind of teaser for what a one-hour or 90-minute show could be, hoping that if somebody saw it and liked it, you know, they would pick it up and finance, you know, a full-on production. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen, but we had a great time making it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, well, let's talk about that for a second. Let's get back to prototypes, p- potentially. Um, so what is the world in six songs? What are the six songs um, that that every song is based on? Is that Well, so the, the idea is, um, it's not that there's six particular songs, but six song types, right. song categories, and um, the idea is that um, the, the music that we know and perform and listen to um, now and over time fits into six different social uses, six different categories representing how we used music in society and how uh, the brain processes it. There are distinctive neurochemical signatures to the six kinds. So they're knowledge, friendship, joy, comfort, religion, and love. Mm. And a song can exist in more than one category, certainly. Um, But that accounts for almost all... Well, it accounts for all of the pieces of music I was able to to find, and I looked at thousands. So those are all pretty um, positive subjects. They include their antonyms. So friendship (laughs) includes hatred and love and... yeah. I see, I see. Oh, interesting. Um, Friendship includes war because the the social bonding function of music in, say, uh, military songs or patriotic songs or political songs mm -hmm. is implicitly saying we are of this group and those bastards are of the other group and we're going to kill them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It is, I mean... It is amazing how powerful music is that it can it can depress us and bring us joy and and but it can also it can bond people it can bond people so much that people will uh, uh, will use one of these songs as as a 
theme as a battle cry for for going into war. Yeah. Um, do you think that that had anything to do with the uh, uh, with the evolution of of music in the first place? How do you think some of the origins are? Are there any animals that seem to play music? I mean, there's birds sing, right? Do are there any primates that like? make any rhythmical i've seen them like hit slap trees around or whatever and and well, this is a very complicated question um when when birds sing it sounds like music to us and mozart and others have commented on the musicality of bird song mm-hmm. not all bird song uh, the caw of a crow or the screeching of a scrub jay don't sound very musical but um you know when you th- hear something like you're thinking, oh, well, that's that bird singing. That bird must be having a good time. But um, what the ethologists, the animal behavior specialists, mm. believe is that songs to birds are functioning more like speech functions for us. There's, um, they're trying to express very particular things, and they have a very restricted way of doing it. So most of the bird song can be um, reduced or compartmentalized to a warning you know, that there's a predator, to a mating call or to a kind of territorial call, maybe an alert that there's some food nearby to let the others know. Um, and so they have a very specific communicative tent intent. It doesn't seem as though, from what we know, a bird is just singing to please itself or to please another bird. It's a, it's a signal. Music for humans, though, a person all alone by themselves will play music. Mm. Uh, And in fact, there have been some clever studies. Birds stop singing if they don't think there's another bird nearby. Right. Whereas I'll only sing in the shower when I know I'm alone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's interesting. I I sometimes ask people questions outside of their areas and stuff, so I do apologize for that. But but, uh, do you think... So uh, given that logic, is is a robin... Um, "Quote unquote," saying more than a than a crow that's just going "caca caca." Oh, actually, there's a lot of crows in the neighborhood here, and I had never lived near crows before. Mm. And they've got a very vast repertoire. They're doing a lot. I mean, the caca is the thing that we all know, but they're making all. So kinds there's of... more than just the cartoons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what the cartoons yeah, are yeah. saying about them. They, there's a particular sound they make when a dog walks by. Mm. And another sound that they make when they're when they've discovered food, and that latter sound, to me, sounds like Latin percussion. It's a bunch of um, wooden clave-sounding kinds of things that they must be doing in the bottom of their throat. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I guess back to my question of of some of the origins of uh, of human music. Um, so I think you said in, in your book there's some, like, f- flute or something that they found that's 60,000 years old or something yeah. like that? Is that bone right? flute. A bone flute? Um, a, a pretty simple instrument? or Yeah, um, and you can go on the web and you can look up the, the ancient bone flute and you can hear what it sounds like. And the notes that it plays are not very far off from our present-day scale. Really? And um, there's been some speculation that, well, you know, if this bone flute has been around as long, longer than Homo sapiens sapiens, possibly, it was founded in Neanderthal site, Mm. um, you would think that before 
uh, early humans or proto-humans got around to carving holes in a bone and making a flute, uh, they already for tens of thousands of years would have been slapping on their chests, Bobby McFerrin style, or making drums out of tree stumps, or you know, singing, you know, doing all other kinds of things. So it suggests that music's been around for a very, very long time and is probably older than humans. Yeah, yeah. It would be strange if the flute was the very first. <laughs> it's right. just like, we nailed it. First try. What do you know? Yeah, I'd make Jethro Tull happy, I guess. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting, the, the way that, um, that as our technology and, and uh, various... Uh, musical mediums have expanded that that there still seems to be a lot of these same basic root structures and i i remember watching um uh, just because i just went to this uh a pink floyd live at pompeii and they have some interview things in between some of the songs and it's either gilmore or, or rogers was talking about when they when they started using a, a synthesizer it was uh, it, they said that it was that they weren't like finding music. They weren't like discovering music. They're just finding ways to get the music that was in their head out. Are, are they, is that just kind of BS? Do you think? No, or, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so music's so music was possibly kind of in our head before we ever even learned to play it or anything before we ever started i mean this is crazy speculation probably at this point well it's hard to say i mean are are words in your head before you speak them yeah yeah that's true i mean definitely there's thoughts without words um even though before you before you have the the ability to articulate it i've never thought of, of music like that though I always thought of it as being discovered as like, oh, that kind of sounded neat, the way that banged against a thing, or that string made a vibration. Oh, I wonder if we can replicate that. I, I, think, I think there are different ways of coming up with music, and maybe a better analogy is painting. Some painters sit in front of the canvas, and they draw exactly what's in their head. Mm -hmm. Others put something there, and then they say, oh, well, that looks pretty neat. I, what if I did this next? No, I don't know, I like that. What if I did that? And what if I did that? And um, the creation in the head and the creation on the canvas sort of create a feedback loop, and one spurs the other one on. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm interested in... Uh, so one of the six was religion. Um, why do you think music is such an enormous part of... Basically, every religion you can go to these hunter-gatherer tribes, and it seems that... Um, it, you know, all these big ceremonies are centered around music. Um, there's even, I remember reading some book that I'm forgetting the name of years and years ago. And, and this guy kind of had this, this theory that early religion may have started because they, they found these, um, this kind of, uh, evidence that there were, that, that there are these old, um, yeah. Oh, what do they call them? Uh, like these dance circles mm -hmm. around fire pits that they found that were like well-worn that, that seemed to look exactly like the kind of dance circles that, you know, these small tribes might use today. And, and this idea that, uh, maybe, maybe if there's this rhythmic thing and, and people are kind of dancing themselves almost into a stupor, they're somehow, um, 
getting themselves into like almost a transcendental state. Mm -hmm. And that's when they were kind of first accessing these, um, these regions, which in my line of thinking would be the non-conscious mind somehow misinterpreting like a higher power or whatever. But why do you think music's been such a big part of, of religion in general? I think part of it is the, um, the very primal power of drums Mm. that, um, that you know, rhythm is a very um, powerful and basic um, stimulus. If you go back to um, small animals that have burrowed in the ground and made some, you know moles or or squirrels or rabbits that live in in a imagine in a in a hole in the ground, imagine that it's windy outside and so there's a tree branch that hits the the little the top surface of their home. Mm-hmm. The first time it hits, they're going to startle because they don't know what. It Someone's is. breaking in. Right, there's a truck coming to come and get me. They're thinking. Yeah. Uh, and the second time it hits, they're a little bit startled, but not as much. And if it keeps hitting rhythmically, at some point they habituate to it. They don't. You know, the mole isn't saying, "Oh, that's a regular beat. I can ignore it now because it's just some natural occurrence." But you know, these organisms have evolved to habituate to things that are repetitive, and we are the descendants of those organisms. And so when we hear something repetitive, it makes us feel safe. Mm. There's safety in that um, repetition. Um, And we synchronize the firing of neurons in the brain to the firing of the, to the, the pulse, the meter, and the tempo of the drums. And if you and I are listening to the same drums and we're each synchronizing to it, our brain waves become synchronized with one another's. So it creates this bonding experience. Mm. And I think it's been known for tens of thousands of years that music will bind people together. And that releases a chemical called oxytocin that is a hormone that causes us to feel trust for one, towards yeah. one another. Mm. So I think, you know, religion religion discovered this. Hmm. It, yeah, it's interesting how much a rhythm plays a part of our life independent of, of music. It, I, I did a lot of factory work uh, before I was a comedian. And uh, one job, Ashley Furniture, we got paid per piece or whatever. So that basically the faster you'd go, the more money you'd get paid. And, and when, when you started out, you'd just be frantically trying to go as fast as you could. Yeah. And when you're more experienced, you realize that if you got into this rhythm, you yeah. know, and, and just kept this rhythm yeah. this whole time, that it was a much more efficient way uh, uh, to work. And I suppose the same thing would go with building a shelter if you're hammering something or running or walking or anything else following a rhythm probably helps stabilize well i think about great construction projects like the great pyramids you know you've got a bunch of people trying to move these enormous stones they're probably doing the one two heave ho and they've all got a hoe at the same moment or the thing isn't going to move or it's going to get dropped on somebody's foot or something so they were they were probably doing all this to music you know, there were work songs, and they were synchronizing their movements with the songs. Whistle while you work. Dun, 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 mm. dun, you know, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I don't think they were singing a different song. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but, I mean, you can almost picture the, the seven little people with right, their pickaxes, right. you know, <laughs> to the tune of the music. 
<laughs> the seven little people is well, what we're, we're going to have to call it right. from now on. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so, <laughs> so if music has this, uh, so music has this wonderfully uplifting function, this re- religious function, this this bonding, you know, can bring this band of brothers together. Uh, can express joy and friendship. Brothers and, in arms. Brothers in arms. So. Who, are, who might be, may or may not be in dire straits. Right. <laughs> My question is, if, obviously, if music can bring you joy, it seems fairly straightforward why someone would want to listen to music, but why would someone want to listen to music that doesn't bring them joy? There's so many depressing songs out there, so many songs that um, can make you cry or... Or uh, make you feel like everything's hopeless. Right. So um, it's what we've discovered in the last few years is that if you're depressed, um, sad music actually makes you feel better. And, and so your question is, why would that be? And I think it's because usually when you're depressed, you know, or unhappy, or uh, miserable, or sad, or any of these states, um, in most cases. Whatever it is that led you to that um, has you feeling misunderstood. You feel disconnected from other people like they don't understand you. Mm-hmm. Or at least one person didn't understand you and that caused you to feel this way. Not every case, but in most cases. So the last thing you want is your roommate to come bounding into the room and say, get up off that couch, let's listen to some Sousa marches. <laughs> you know, get, let's get, you know, I mean, you hear that, you want to punch him in the face because <laughs> right. it's one more person who doesn't understand you. What you want is this sad song to come on and you can go, oh, wow, that person understands me. I'm no longer sitting alone at the edge of the cliff. There's somebody else here with me. Yeah. They've been through it and they came out the other side and turned it into something beautiful, into a work of art. That's uplifting. Mm, yeah, we're all in this together. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And um, when you're sad and you listen to sad music, there's evidence that the chemical prolactin is released. Prolactin is a soothing, tranquilizing hormone that's also released when mothers are nursing their infants. Hmm. So, uh, reading your book, it's just—I mean, the brain's such a complicated thing, anyway. And you think? And, and, uh, and neuroscience, <laughs> neuroscience is is uh, sometimes a little jargony, and sometimes it, I mean, I try to read a fair amount of neuroscience, and it's just—it it is. Every neuroscience book that I read is always the slowest one of my reads because it just takes the. It's so insanely complicated. It's a slog, <laughs> and it was so interesting listening to you detail every tiny little aspect of everything that's going on. And and one of the things that I thought was interesting was was just the idea that um, that kind of music doesn't necessarily have a inherent structure like, like there's nothing that we're necessarily built with maybe maybe rhythm um that uh, that should lead us to like one particular music over another and then you look all all these different cultures listen to all this other music and i'm sure if they listen to uh, we listen to their music sometimes it sounds strange to us i'm sure our music yeah. sounds very strange to them 
and uh, and there is no there's no real through line sometimes. Right. There's no universal stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so why why is that? Why why hasn't especially this day and age? How come? How come no one's cracked the code where just everyone in the world hears this one song and, oh, my God, that's just the perfect song? Well, because um, music is culturally specific. We're raised in a culture with a particular set of chord sequences and note and rhythm sequences, uh, and we're familiar with those, and so composers in our tradition work within that structure they might borrow from other musics like Tchaikovsky famously did in the Nutcracker Suite where he's got the Russian dance and the Arabian dance and mm. the Chinese dance and we recognize those as such. But he's doing them within the context of Western music still. And, you know, the Beatles famously uh, borrowed from Indian ragas as, and then later um, Peter Gabriel's Real World label with um, records produced by Michael Brook for Yusu Endur Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, sort of this East meets West kind of stuff. Um, the way that David Byrne and Paul Simon brought in African and, and South American music. But it, you weren't listening to African music. You were listening to African music influence on you know, American music. So um, we're, we're raised in a culture with certain expectations about what music's supposed to sound like. And if you bring in music from another culture, um, it doesn't follow our rules, so we don't understand what it's doing. We don't even know if it's happy or sad necessarily. And the people in the other culture have the same problem. And, I mean, we might just as well ask, why, why didn't somebody crack the code of language and come up with the exact consonants and vowel combinations that suddenly everybody would understand right, what one right. person was saying? Yeah, it is interesting that we have these ideas. You watch a scary movie, and there's this suspense music, and anyone watching knows, like, uh-oh, there's the bad guys right around the corner or, or whatever. But, but this isn't inherent. This is something that we've learned culturally yes, yeah. over time. And when you hear, bum, 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 you sort of picture Bugs Bunny climbing a set of stairs. Yeah. But that's cultural. Right. Uh, and, I mean, look at beauty. Um, there's an internet meme going around in the last couple of weeks of women's body styles from different cultures and what different cultures find beautiful today. I mean, not even going back to the Rubenesque figures. Right. And, I mean, I mean, there's a wide variation in what um, people consider attractive today in 2016. Hmm. Um, and you know, culture is a very powerful thing. Right. But there's still, it seems like there's still some underlying, like... Um it seems that even if if some cultures like bigger women or slimmer women, there's still this you know pretty well studied waist to hip ratio. That's a cue of fertility that seems to be attractive across all cultures. Are there things like that in music? Would rhythm be that kind of thing? That well, so that's a brilliant question. Uh, there are two things that I know of that are kind of universal. So you're right. The waist-to-hip ratio is something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that most cultures um, do gravitate towards that. And then other factors like ideal weight can change dramatically from culture to culture, from like 100 pounds for a woman to 150 for a woman. Right. Um, and I don't even know what the attractiveness work is on men. 
Um, but I mean, it, it, certainly culture, I've got a picture of Elvis Presley shirtless, who was the sex symbol of the late 50s. <laughs> and by today's standards, he's scrawny and not built at all. Yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, no muscles and... It's yeah. kind of weird to look at. I, I would have been killing it back then. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> we were born too late. Um, but it, in music, the two universals that I know of are the octave. Bum, bum. That ratio of frequencies, a ratio of two to one, if you, if you actually count the frequencies, like 100 hertz versus 200 hertz, mm. 250 hertz versus 500 hertz, um, on a piano keyboard you know the notes go a b c d e f g and then they start over again at a they don't go to h that's reflecting the octave and that seems to be a musical universal and then certain rhythm rhythmic ratios are universal low integer ratios like two to one notes that are twice as long as others or three times as long as others Mm. now you get into africa and you get polyrhythms you get into asian uh, music and you get into microtonality and um, different scales, but the octave seems to be present in all music. So, what parts of the brain? In and I just can't pull it out of my memory, but you're welcome to. My my audience is more than prepared for whatever jargon you have for them. Um, so so don't worry about that. But it sounds uh, like it sounds like you want me to use some jargon. Uh, and, and, no, I well, this next question sounds like you're probably going me. to require it. So, so you talk about you know you listen to a song and maybe eight different regions of the brain are are active during different phases and and kind of taking in different parts of information. Like say, one part of the brain is is. Uh, kind of doing rhythm another part is understanding vocals and and maybe putting some emotion behind it um so what what parts of of music seem to be more um primal at least in the earlier stages and then and then what parts take a lot more of our kind of uh newer uh, evolved machinery kind of more of our consciousness well, the hemi-demi-quavers in music activate the uh, McPherson sagittus in the brain. <laughs> and then yeah, we're following along, no problem. Whenever you hear an augmented major-minor 12th chord, that activates the framistamus. I'm making that whole thing up. None of that is real There's terms at all. There's not a framistamus? I thought for sure there was a framistamus. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know what I'm asking, though, kind of, right? Yeah, so um, the, it, it seems as though different components of music are processed by different parts of the brain. So uh, when sound first comes in, it gets shuttled off to different special purpose modules mm. in the brain. One part processes the duration of notes. Another part of the brain processes how loud they are. Another one processes the pitch. Another one, the timbre, that is whether it's a piano or a trumpet or a xibraphone or whatever. I made that up. Uh, <laughs> and it's my ideal instrument. The, uh, the xibraphone really activates the framel yes. or whatever it was. But um, it's not so, if it sounds odd that your brain is doing all this separate processing, 
you don't notice it because it comes together very quickly after right. just a few tens of milliseconds. And by the time you're aware of it, you only hear it as a bound whole. But the visual system does the same thing. Right. So um, I mean, you don't realize it unless you study it in, in um, neuroscience. Where, you know, when you take a class, you read a book, you, you, how would you be aware of it? The, um, the color of an object is processed in a separate set of neural circuits than its location, mm-hmm. and that's separate from whether it's moving or not. Movement's processed in an area called MT, color in an area I think called V4, visual area 4, and then you've got the edges and the shape in a different area than that. And um, we know this because people with brain injury sometimes lose one of these, but not the others. Mm -hmm. So we've now seen patients who can no longer process rhythm, but they can still process melody or vice versa Ah. because they had focal damage to some part of the brain. And we've seen people who can't... I've seen a patient um, whose um, object and location centers became unbound to her color centers. So I could show her a green apple and a red apple and say, what do you see? And she'd say, well, I see two apples and I see something green and something red. But I don't know if the red and the green are apples or something else. I don't know which one is red and which one's green. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and it, it, the brain does it so fast. You know, you can have this blind spot when you're driving where your brain's telling you that, I mean, it's showing you there's an empty lane <laughs> to, your, to your left or whatever. And then you go to merge and the car honks. And next thing you know, there, there's a car yeah. right there in that same perception that you had a split second ago. Yeah. It was interesting when you were talking about uh, how, how the brain tells the difference between whether you're listening to uh, one violin or multiple violins that are seemingly playing at the exact same uh, time. Yeah. And, and it's that, uh, uh, can you explain that? It, it's, it's that there's, there's just like a, a hundredth of a second delay or something or, like or that? Or less, sure. Um, yeah, the, we, there are a bunch of, I would call them micro variations. If the two instruments don't start at precisely the same instant, the phase of the resulting sound waves are somewhat out of sync or out of phase, we Mm. say. Um, And that means that the timbre is going to be slightly different. Your ear will detect that they didn't start at the same time. And we call it sounding, we say it sounds richer. But um, you can do the experiment now on a computer in GarageBand. You can take a single violin note replicate it and if you line it up perfectly you don't hear that you've added anything Mm. if you move it off by just a few thousandths of a millisecond it it can sound like two violins it sounds a little artificial it doesn't sound like two real violinists because of course two real violinists are going to be changing um, the relationship between their notes continuously every time they finger or bow there's a new opportunity for them to be off by some small amount and so that amount by which they're off changes. And if you have a whole string section of 30 players, that lushness that we hear is from them being imperfect. Now, if they're too imperfect, it sounds like ass. Mm-hmm. But if, if they're imperfect in just the right way, it sounds great. This piano that we were listening to before, um, those, those of you who don't know how pianos are built, most of the notes on the piano actually have three strings. 
and the t- the three. I didn't know that. Yeah, and the three strings are tuned to be um, identical pitches, but they're not really identical. They're off by a little bit, and that gives the t- piano its its particular sound. Ah, well, that makes sense now that I know that. And and as far as like uh, using technical, using synthesizers or foot pedals or whatever, is that is that kind of Aren't they replicating? Is that the um, oh, what, what's the term for it? Um, Framistanus. Oh yeah, Framistanus. That's what I'm going for. Granischbeil. Uh, <laughs> it's isn't it just I don't know the reverb or or, or whatever that it, aren't they intentionally making like a song like Pink Floyd or something? They hit their foot pedal or whatever, and then it kind of intentionally makes one guitar. Sound uh, like so, yeah. So with digital or analog signal processing, we can create a bunch of effects. What the foot pedal does is it either triggers a new setting on a computer, or it just runs the guitar through a new processing device, and it might make the guitar sound like two guitars, or sound like it's underwater, or at the bottom of a sixty-gallon oil drum, hmm. or in you know, in outer space surrounded by a bunch of epizootal trebs. So, what do you think is uh, what do you think the future of music is like? Is it is it going to is it going to keep uh, bonding with with science more, or is it, uh, it? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of these people that are just savants or whatever that pop up out of nowhere. Um, uh, you know, we think these music geniuses that have these gifts or whatever, but but it, it seems that it's also becoming a lot more accessible for everyone to say use GarageBand. Or, or whatever else. And, and now that people are understanding why certain sounds and notes are doing certain things uh, to the brain, do you think this is going to be like a leap forward in music? Or do you think that music's going to take a long time to catch up with the science? Will science benefit music? I don't know that... Um... I don't know that science has done anything that's going to change music. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of musicians who are interested in what the kind of work we're doing because they're curious people. They're curious about the world. Um, I guess there, there are little things that um, science has taught us, um, but they're not about the music itself. They're about ways to get there. So what I mean is that in my own case, the biggest thing I've learned from the science, from having played for 20 years and then done the science for 20 years and continued to play, is that um, is how I, the, the biggest thing I've learned is how to practice. The practice has to be spaced over time, has to be deliberate, you have to have goals. And so I can much more quickly master a piece or get to a point where I'm comfortable with a piece because I know what the science of learning says about that. And I can, um, through music theory, which, which I didn't get from science, but I can, I can now much more quickly help a friend finish a song or come up with an alternative for a chord that's not working because I know what some of the options are. Hmm. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like going to school to study acting or writing or comedy. I think, you know... Some people figure it out on their own. Some people figure it out a little faster if they've got some guidelines and instruction. Mm. Um, actually, I am quite curious now that you mentioned you've, you've uh, improved how you practice music. 
what kind of what kind of strategy do you use like a pomodoro technique or something like that where you play for 20 minutes and take a five to ten minute break and basically uh the the most important thing is that i i do a little bit every day Mm. and then make sure i sleep between the 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 sessions so sleep helps to consolidate memories and skill acquisition so um if i've got a piece if i've got a performance coming up and I've got a piece I need to learn, I'll practice for just 10 minutes in the morning when I first get up. And then maybe at 10 minutes before lunch and another 10 minutes, I do it in 10 or 15 minute increments throughout the day. And I do it every day. I don't just do it like all in a Sunday afternoon. Mm. Okay. Which is what I did as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we wrap up, uh, I have each one of my guests plug a charity each week. So, Daniel, what, uh, what charity would you like to plug? I like to plug um, the Music Cares program, which is sponsored by the Grammy organization. Music Cares? Yes. Okay. It's just got one C, though, Music Cares. Okay. And it's to help uh, musicians who are indigent or need money to help um, with medical expenses or for emergency funds or... You know, anytime a, a musician uh, is in financial need, they've got a very, um, a very clear and easy and um, honest process. You know, there's they they don't give out money just to, just anybody. They make sure that you really need it. But um, it's important, especially now, because musicians are making so much less money yeah. than they used to, and a lot of people who love music just never. And, and our great musicians just never made enough money to put away for retirement or to have a rainy day fund. So I'm a big fan of this program. And they have a Music Cares person every year that they honor at the Grammy Awards. Um, I wasn't expecting to get into this, but I, I am curious, what your, as, as a performer myself, why do you think that musicians are making so much less money? Just to, because people are getting everything for free now? Um, I think it's two things, but certainly it's that um, what had been a easily a twelve or twenty billion dollar a year industry is now down to a less than six billion dollar industry. Mm. The sales of recorded music, um, because we now have an entire generation of people who are used to just getting stealing music, mm-hmm. getting it for free, uh, and they and they look at people like me who still buy CDs as saps. Why would you pay for it? Well, because it's illegal not to, but it's very hard to enforce the laws. Um, Digital files are promiscuous, and they end up all kinds of places, and, you know, one person buys the CD and a thousand people don't. So that's been a problem. Uh, And I think the other thing is that music means less in in today's culture to millennials and to... I don't mean that they don't like it, but it... For people of my generation, and it sounds like for you, and maybe people of your generation, um, music was a path to spiritual enlightenment and to learning about yourself and about the world, and, and it was a shared experience that was very meaningful to us in our, in our lives. And a lot of people I know today, it's just sonic wallpaper. Yeah. Yeah. Pop. <laughs> I mean, well... Has pop music always been this prevalent, though, or or is it has it gotten worse? Just just like the the um, 
Just the dumbed down stuff that gets so much attention. There was always dumbed down stuff. There was eeny weeny teeny weeny polka dot bikini. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. there was incense and peppermints and uh, before Barbie Girl yeah. got popular. Um, hmm. Well, uh, what about uh, what about like Pandora and Spotify and those kinds of things? Do you think because they're paying out royalties? Well, and I, I get paid some royalties sure, on that, uh, but they're paying a fraction right. of what artists would be getting if they had bought the CD. Right. And this is just you know the way the licenses were negotiated. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, it's uh, not, it's not fair to the artists because I think that the artists deserve to be able to function in a marketplace where being a musician and a songwriter is a career. It's yeah. a career choice, and you it, it it ought to be something you can make a living at. And if you think of your favorite musicians, whether it's Dave Grohl or Bono or, or Avril Lavigne or whoever it is, they're doing this for a living, and um, the songs you love are the result of them having the freedom to pursue it. But yeah. for every one of those, there's another thousand musicians who are working a day job in a factory right. or making sandwiches in a, in a lunch counter who are having to do their songwriting and practicing in the evenings and on weekends as a hobby. And do you really want Bono to be writing songs as a hobby in his spare time, or do you want him to be able to devote himself to it? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a whole lot of comedians that are as funny or funnier than I am that haven't gotten the breaks that I've had and would switch places with me in a heartbeat. And I have three roommates. <laughs> and most people wish they were me. Meanwhile, I can barely pay rent every month. So we're talking about exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the problem that you have is the problem musicians have. Yeah. People don't buy comedy records anymore. Right. And it's not that you could have made a fortune on a comedy record, but you could have supported yourself. Right. And, um, you know, if somebody YouTubes your show from a cell phone video, it's going to be harder to get people to pay the five bucks or the 20 bucks to come see you because they've seen the routine. Right, right. Um, well, and, and I guess I guess your audience knows that comedians don't do the same don't come up with a brand new show every single night they're doing yeah i I think people are getting keen to that i i mean you'll still go places and and people will be like so do you just make all that stuff up when you get up there well thanks for thinking i'm that much of a genius the the worst act you've ever seen i couldn't just come up with off the top of my head um so lastly, off the, off the top of, of, of music, you have a book coming up in September called uh, uh, Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Age of Information. Is that correct? Uh, in the Information Age. Information yeah. Age. Yeah. Boom. Um, Boom. And, uh, and can you give my, my listeners a, a little bit of a tease about what that will be about? There was a book that came out in the 1950s by a guy named Daryl Huff called How to Lie with Statistics. And I've read that book a dozen times, and I just loved it. The problem is that most of the examples in the book come from, like, U.S. Steel in the 1930s and the Roosevelt administration and stuff. And I thought it would be fun to write a book that's kind of like that, a kind of snide, snarky look at what the media is shoving down our throats Mm. and use contemporary examples. How is it that... Um, people lie to us or deceive us or manipulate us with charts and figures and graphs and statistics and claims, and what can each of us do to arm ourselves against that? So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably somewhere along the line heard the ad campaign that four out of five dentists 
surveyed recommend Colgate toothpaste. Right. Well, it's true, but if you if you look at what actually happened in the survey, the dentists were allowed to list as many toothpastes as they wanted. It's not that four out of five dentists prefer Colgate to another toothpaste. It's that they recommend it, but they also recommended Crest right. and Aquafresh and AIM, right, and Arm and & Hammer and, you know, the store brand at CVS. You know. So one, of, one out of five of these guys just forgot that Colgate was a thing, right. basically. But, I mean, so if, if, if you're not critical about the statistic or the claim, you think, oh, well, Colgate's the best, which is, of course, what they want you to believe, but... Uh, they were um, taken to court by um, the uh, British version of the Federal Trade Commission, and they're no longer allowed to use that claim mm. because it's deceptive. And we find these everywhere. They're, and they're unfortunately even in, in trusted newspapers. And Say it ain't so. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> you mean the news? Is is altering uh, statistics to to uh, get me excited about something, so I'll keep tuning in. How so, dare you say that about the news? So I've got examples of this, these kinds of things in the book, because I really think that the most important thing is that we have an informed electorate who know the difference between truth and pseudo-truth, between fact and pseudo-fact, between science and pseudo-science. And um, then an informed electric is more capable of electing leaders who are honorable and are trying to do the right thing. Mm. Well, you're a dreamer. Well, I am on uh, your side and not nearly as optimistic as you. Um, but, well, uh, but I think these things can be taught. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. I, don't, I, mean, I think if, if people will just spend a couple hours thinking about these things, it'll make a big difference. That's why I do this podcast. I there think you go. it's very important. Thank so, you for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. Go to the herewearepodcast.com website. You can find out more about Daniel's books and Music Cares. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Next week on the program, we have a fantastic episode for you. It's all about depression. I've been trying... Uh, to find someone to to really dig in to the issue of depression and various theories and studies and research, all that stuff for some time. It's something that I've had to cope with a lot of my life. It's the one thing that's kind of a chronic issue for me. I share a little bit about my personal uh, struggle with it, not to be over dramatic. Uh, I just think it's interesting. It's something that affects a lot of people. Everyone, of course, has a... a passing depression here and there and some people uh have have it more chronically and some more chronic than others uh it's a fantastic uh topic to get into um maybe a little toward the darker side for some people but if you like this podcast you're really gonna love this episode we kind of debunk a lot of the uh collective wisdom that floats uh, around our society about antidepressants and everything else and I think you're going to really enjoy it and learn a lot I know I did uh, it was one, of, one of my favorite episodes um, of the year probably so make sure and tune in next week and I will talk with you then those of you that listened all the way to the end you're my favorite
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we called clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins one day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P in Spanish, oh my God. <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God. 